all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. morning and thanks for joining me today here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and today we're going to be talking about healthy aging, what that means and what are some strategies that we can put in place to set ourselves up for success as we age. All right, this is a really important topic for us to address. I get tons of questions through email about this as well as in my clinic, um, working with individuals on lowering their risk of chronic disease. And actually, September was Healthy Aging Awareness Month. So we are just out of September. Um, But I wanted to bring this topic forward and make sure that we cover it um, as well. And I think we can just start with, what do I mean by healthy aging? Well, there are two parts when we're talking about health outcomes in general, but here in the in the term of healthy aging, and that is life expectancy or, or length of life and then quality of life. And those two things go together, right? We want to have um, a long, healthy life or a long life free of a lot of chronic pain, disability, comorbid conditions, those types of things. So when we talk about healthy aging, We're really talking about managing those chronic conditions as well as we can, preventing any complications from developing in those conditions, um, or preventing the development of other chronic illnesses, and living as independently and as happy as possible, right? And so there are strategies that we can absolutely put in place to increase the likelihood of those things occurring. And there are things that we simply can't change, right? We can't change the fact that we're getting older, right? That is going to to come every day that that gets added on the calendar. um, You're a day older. And so that is not something that is modifiable, um, as well as genetics. You know, there are certain um, chronic conditions that are going to be very heavily um, influenced by our genes, and so that we're kind of we're kind of stuck with too, right? We can't we can't pick our family, we can't pick our our genetic uh, history that we um, have acquired. 
And so those are, are things that uh, we call non-modifiable risk factors. But there's a whole other chunk of stuff that we can modify, right? And so these are things that we tend to think about, um, like our physical activity patterns or our nutrition, our sleep, our stress. All of those things can be modified to either help prevent, treat, or reverse chronic illness. And when we're talking about healthy aging, there are kind of four big ones that kind of come and stand out. The first one is physical activity, and I'm going to spend a good chunk of time talking about that, especially as it relates to um, healthy aging. And then we've got the nutrition piece. Mental health as well is super important as we focus on healthy aging. And then making sure that we see our health care provider regularly for checkups annually and then um, if we have chronic illnesses uh, more frequently than that throughout the year so that we stay on top of things and work on lowering those other uh, risk factors. So the reason, one of the reasons I wanted to do this show is I got uh, a great set of questions from a listener and I'm going to start with one of those questions today that says, what exercises and endurance tasks should be performed without harm for people over the age of 65? And before I get into those specific exercises, I want to kind of give you a little bit of the evidence for why being physically active is so important as we age. And really, physical activity is important at every age and developmental stage, right? Now, there are certainly different things that we're going to have a toddler do versus a young adult versus a middle or older adult, but physical activity is foundational for health and foundational for healthy aging. And when I use the word foundational, I mean, it's got to be, it's it's like the, the base on which our health is built. And physical activity is that important. People who exercise regularly live longer and better than people who don't exercise regularly. And I think when we hear the word exercise, some some of us automatically go, ooh, right? And we think about um, something that is not fun, something that takes a long amount of time, something that requires a gym or I have to lift weights or, you know, all of these different processes. And that's simply not the case, right? We're really talking about movement here. And any movement counts and any movement is beneficial in helping uh, to increase longevity and increase quality of life. And really, the more physically active we are, the more years of living without pain or with less pain and less disability, that, that's linked to that. So being physically active helps staves off some of those things. And you guys know I love to bring forward actual published scientific evidence of these things and go through studies. So this is a fairly recent one, um, March 2020, in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, so a very well-respected publication that looks at step count. And so step count is, again, how many steps we take in a day. And there are a multitude of different ways to track that. There are fancy watches that will do it. There are pedometers you can clip on your belt or your shoe. There are you know apps on your phone. If you carry your phone around in your pocket, usually step counters are more accurate the closer they are to like your hip 
areas. So if you're going to clip it on something, clipping it on your belt area, or if you're going to use your cell phone, you know, kind of keeping it in a back pocket, something like that, um, tends to give a little bit more accuracy to that. So with this particular study, they looked at um, almost 5,000 adults over the age of 40, and the average age was around 57. And these folks wore an accelerometer. And so that's the actual technology that's inside a pedometer or your cell phone or your apps that are tracking your steps. And not only did they track the number of steps that you took or that these individuals took, they also tracked the cadence or the step uh, steps per minute, right? So how quickly were you doing it? Because we've largely been taught that you got to exercise at a certain intensity or you got to move at a certain intensity for there to be any benefit. And while the evidence is, is clear that moderate intensity physical activity is very beneficial, um, again, any movement is better than no movement. And I think that the results of this particular study kind of helped to highlight that. So what did they actually look at? Well, the primary outcome or what they were interested in looking at was all-cause mortality, which just means dying from any reason. And you might think, well, you know, maybe it's because these folks already had diabetes or high blood pressure or, you know, some of these other cardiometabolic diseases that would increase their um, risk of death. Well, they controlled for all of that. So there are... You know, fancy statistical ways to kind of control for those variables so that they are not um, impacting the outcome that we are looking at. And they grouped folks into folks who did uh, 4,000 or less steps a day and then folks that did 8,000 or more steps per day. So if we think about those kind of two buckets of folks, right, so less than 4,000 steps or greater than 8,000 steps, those that were taking 8,000 steps compared to the 4,000 had a 51% reduction in all-cause mortality, right? That's pretty impressive because that's not even to that magical 10,000 step that we hear a lot in uh, you know, handouts and marketing. We think about 10,000 steps a day. Just doing 8,000 versus 4,000 uh, is cutting your risk in half. And if we were able to get 12,000 steps per day, that risk reduction was by 65%. So again, any movement is better than no movement. And working on increasing to at least 8,000 steps a day is a a great way to work on lowering your risk of, of death as you age. What was interesting about the secondary finding in this is that there was no association between step intensity and the reduction in mortality if you got the correct number of steps. So it didn't matter how quickly you did those 8,000 steps as long as you got them, okay? So that just highlights the fact that we can begin at whatever pace we need to begin at, at whatever number we need to begin at. But intentionally looking at your steps is a really important piece as we work on healthy aging. So you may be saying, well, Josie, how do I do it? You know, how do I get started? And what are some of the other things that I can do in terms of physical activity to help as we age? As we get older, we want to have good quality of life. And that's what we're talking about, how to lower our risk of chronic disease and pain and just 
have a long, fruitful, healthy life. Or you can always email me, fit at mpbonline.org. So before the break, we were talking about step counts and how getting 8,000 steps a day dramatically lowers your risk of mortality compared with just 4,000 steps per day. And the only way to know how many you're getting is to start tracking it. And so that's one of the first things that I do with patients who want to target their step count as a strategy to get their cardiovascular exercise in, right? So your endurance exercise, your aerobic exercise, whatever you want to call it, um, is to start to track and, you know, using any of those devices that we talked about in the first segment of the show and track for a week and see what you're getting, right? And see if there are variations from day to day. Um, you may notice, man, my Mondays are, I'm so much more active on my Monday than I am on my Wednesday, right? And that's a good time to step back and reflect and go, well, why, right? Are there, do I park in a different spot on Monday or do I have a different set of errands that I have to run? What's going on in, in that particular time frame? And then once you have that, baseline kind of average that you're doing daily for the um, a week or so, then we can write a goal to increase that. Now, if you're getting, let's say we're only getting 2,000 steps per day, right? And we just said we really want to get to 8,000. Well, we do not have to go from 2,000 to 8,000 overnight, Right. And I would actually encourage you not to do that, um, especially if you if you're have not really ever been that level of activity before, because you may hurt yourself. Right. And you may think just walking. How am I going to hurt myself? You may have some problems with the bottom of your feet or the tight muscles in the back of your legs or any of those reasons. But what I start people out on is a 10 percent increase. Right. So if we're at 2000 uh, steps per day, a 10 percent increase would be 200 additional steps. Uh, So for the next week, I'm going to try and get 2200 steps every day of that week. Right. And then at the end of that week, we say, did we get there or did we not get there? And if we didn't get there, that's a time for brainstorming why. Right. And how we can intentionally add those steps back in. If we did get there, then we write another 10 percent increase. Right. So whatever 10 percent of twenty two hundred is. Right. That's what we would do um, the next week. And we just gradually work our way up. And you may be thinking that's going to take forever to get to the eight thousand steps. It's going to take less time than if we're not intentionally looking at things, right? If we just continue to go on about our regular routine, um, nothing changes, right? And that's my favorite phrase. Nothing changes, nothing changes. And so these little changes that we're putting in snowball until we're getting to where we're supposed to be or where we want to be in terms of our physical activity. The second piece is what are guidelines for uh, adults over the age of 65 or 65 and older, well, there are kind of three parts to the physical activity guidelines for uh, this age group. And the first two are the exact same as they would be for any adult, right? 150 minutes of cardio per week and uh, two days of muscle strengthening exercises per week. Those are the same across all uh, category age categories in adulthood. What is added to the 65 and older is a uh, focus on balance. 
And so balance exercises are really important. And I actually recommend building these in well before uh, 65 so that we never have a dip in our balance ability. And what we're trying to get at in terms of working on balance is fall prevention, right? So the more, um, the better our balance is, the less likely we are to fall. Even if we're nudged or trip or any of those kinds of things, we're able to kind of correct ourselves a little bit more if we're working on our balance. And you may go, well, what's a balance exercise? It can be standing on one foot. I mean, literally, that can be a balance exercise. Now, I always recommend if you're going to try balance exercises that you have something to grab onto because you may think standing on one foot sounds like a super easy something to do. And it may not be. Uh, If you have not done that in a long time, if you have had some damage to your ankles, those types of things. So I usually say a chair on each side or something like that or standing kind of in the corner of a room because you've got a wall on each side that you can kind of grab and hold on to. And then just starting with a couple of seconds of standing on uh, on that one foot. Some other things that count as balance activities would be heel to toe walking. So I just take a piece of tape like masking tape and put it down on the ground and then try and walk on that um, heel to toe. Walking backwards is also a form of balance uh, activity. So we've mentioned a lot of different types of activity today, and you may go, my head is spinning, like thinking about all these different things I've got to incorporate for healthy aging. Well, I do encourage you to go to the CDC website. All you have to do is just in whatever browser you're using, you just type healthy aging CDC, and it's going to take you right to to that area and to that physical activity uh, portion there. And it will give you samples like a sample breakdown of what that looks like for a week. And I pulled one um, that uh, is focused on aerobic activity uh, five days of the week, right? So some walking every day. And then two days of muscle strengthening that looks at all the different muscle groups. And then adding in the balance as well. And the way I get all of these things incorporated into my day is by doing something called multi-component physical activity. That's combining things, right? So some things that count as um, cardio also can count as muscle strengthening or things that count as muscle strengthening can also count for balance exercises. And so gardening, right? Gardening can be muscle strengthening. It can be balance. It can even be a little bit of cardio depending on, you know, whether this is a very small herb garden type situation or whether you've got a very large garden that you've got to pull weeds and hoe and all of those different kinds of things in. Tai Chi is another really good multi-component physical activity that's going to get at your resistance exercises or your muscle strengthening, as well as your balance. And then my all-time favorite, dancing. That's going to incorporate all three. So you're going to get some cardio activity, some muscle strengthening activity, as well as um, that balance activity in there. But if we remember nothing, it's that any movement counts at any intensity and at any duration. So intentionally making sure that we are getting up and moving around is the first step, pun intended, to healthy aging. 
All right. The next thing we're going to talk about um, is probably the one that people get the most confused about and the most passionate about at the same time, which is nutrition. And what is the optimal nutrition pattern for health? And the evidence is very clear. And when I say the evidence, I mean, what does the science say about dietary patterns and their impact on health, as well as the nutrients that are more closely associated with longevity and quality versus those that are not, right? And so when we think about all of the chronic disease that we have in this country and even globally, dietary factors are the leading cause of that chronic disease, right? What we consume accounts for the biggest chunk of risk associated with developing chronic disease. And they also contribute to something called disability-adjusted life year. And so what is that? A disability-adjusted life year is the number of years lost due to disability or illness or early death. So years of, years that are lost um, are attributable, a good chunk of them are attributable to dietary factors. And those dietary factors that contribute the most risk are things that are low in fruits and vegetables, low in nuts and seeds, high in sodium, high in processed meat, and high in red meat, right? So if you're a regular listener to the show or you've tuned in more than two or three times, you know that I routinely talk about the benefits of a plant-based diet and that a plant-based diet um, does not mean vegan or vegetarian. It just means plant predominant and a focus on plants. And that is fleshed out very clear when we look at these dietary risks and the nutrients that are associated um, with better outcomes being those nutrient-dense plant foods, the fruits, veg, nuts, seeds, those types of things. So if we actually want to look at some numbers and we want to look at that from a global standpoint, you can actually look at this very, very large um, study called the Global Burden of Disease Study, and it looks at 195 different countries. And for the sake of looking at food, we can look at the nutrient intake for about 15 different nutrients across adults in all 195 of these countries. And the dietary factors accounted for 11 million deaths and 25 million years lost, 25 million disability-adjusted years lost. And so that accounts for 22% of those deaths across those countries are related to what we are eating. And if you want to drill that down to the top three offenders, right, um, high sodium accounts for 3 million of those deaths, low whole grains accounts for 3 million of those deaths, and low fruits account for the other 2 million of those deaths. So that's a lot that is tied up at just those three nutrient groups, whole grains, sodium, and fruit, right? What I hear a lot from folks is, well, I've been eating this way my whole life. It's probably too late to do anything about it, right? Um, Especially as we age. Uh, Once we kind of hit a certain age, we go, well, you know, I've earned it. Or there's really no point in changing now. You know, what the damage is done. And that is simply not the case when we look at nutrition. 
So there, uh, we can actually compare those those nutrition patterns, and they're, they took that same kind of chunk of um, countries, that same study that I just mentioned, and they put people again in different buckets. Um, one being a traditional Western diet, which a traditional Western diet is going to be very high in red meat, processed meat, refined grains, lower in fruits, veggies, whole grains, those types of things. Um, and then they had people kind of all the way at the other end of that spectrum in what they're calling an optimized diet, which is higher fruits and vegetables, higher legumes, which a legume is like a pea, um, a lentil, peanut, that type of thing, uh, higher whole grains, higher fish, and nuts, as well as lower red and processed meats, lower sugar-sweetened beverages, and lower refined grains, right? So that was the the healthiest diet versus the least healthy diet. And then they did a midpoint diet that they're calling a feasibility diet. And so that just means not perfect, not terrible, somewhere in the middle, which is kind of where I like to live a lot of the times is trying to be good enough and working on progressing toward even better. And they compared those diets as and looked at life expectancy. And so did moving from the least healthy diet to the most healthy diet or anywhere along the continuum lead to better life expectancy. And it did. And it even at multiple ages. So if we went from the least healthy to the most healthy at age 20, you actually got between 11 and 13 years of increase in life expectancy for that. That's fairly young to, to move through this. What about at age 60, right? At age 60, moving from a traditional Western diet to the optimized diet, increased life expectancy by eight years for women and 8.8 years for men. That's a lot. What about if we, we just, we've waited, we've waited and waited and now we're 80. Is there any benefit in changing at all? And there is. Moving again from that traditional Western diet to an optimized diet produced 3.4 years of increased life expectancy for both men and women. That's impressive. Well, what about if you, you, I'm not perfect, right? I just want to kind of shoot for that middle point, that middle range and see if that's going to have any improvement. And it does. At age 20, you'd get somewhere between six to seven years of increased life expectancy just by hanging out in the middle. So not the healthiest, not the worst. And then what about if we go up to 80? It's two years, two years of increased life expectancy if we just start to improve our diet uh, halfway by the time we are 80. So what I like to, to sum all of that up with is progress over perfection, right? And that it's never too late to start to invest in making some nutritional changes to impact your health as you age, and it is never too late. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, and we've been talking all about healthy aging today. And we've talked about the science behind physical activity and why that's so important, as well as some practical steps to help you get some more steps in your day. And at the last segment, we introduced the topic of nutrition and 
and why it is so important to uh, work on your nutritional habits and that you don't have to be perfect as you're doing those things. So how do we do it if you're sitting there and you're going, all right, I'm ready to start. How do we do that? Well, if you're if you're a fan of looking up meal plans online and you really feel like you need some structure to go by, then the Mediterranean diet would be the direction that I would send you. Right. It's going to be a diet that is based in plants. It's going to be very fruit, veggie, grain, nuts and seed heavy. And then for the animal proteins that are included in that particular pattern um, are going to be your much leaner choices, usually um, your fish, uh, a little bit of chicken, uh, and then very low on um, your red meats and incorporating multiple meat-free meals per week. And that's the first step, right, is I would go, how can I make one of my go-to meals that we have on the regular meat-free whether that be pasta night, whether that be uh, taco night, whether that be meatloaf night. And you may be going, how am I going to make meat, meatloaf meat free? Because it's in the name, right? It is. We call that a lentil loaf. Uh, and it, uh, it can be done and it can be uh, delicious. But those foods that are familiar to yourself and familiar to your family are often an easier uh, sell when we're looking at ways to have a meat-free meal or even just reducing the amount of meat in that particular recipe. Um, if you're having tacos, maybe half a pound of ground you know, meat, whatever you're using, and uh, a can of black beans, right? That uh, is a great way to dramatically reduce the amount of red meat or even turkey, if you're doing ground turkey, that you consume in that particular meal while bumping up the fiber content, as well as all those other phytonutrients that are so important um, for calming down inflammation and, and the like. Um or cutting out that meat completely and using um, you know, beans in your tacos or um, lentils in your bolognese sauce for your pasta or choosing one of the pastas that are made from a, from a, a pea protein like a chickpea pasta or um, a lentil-based pasta that cook up just like regular pasta but are going to have that protein content because what happens a lot of times when people um, go well I'm going to cut back on meat is they just cut back what they wind up cutting back on is protein and that's not necessarily what we want to have happen protein is one of those things that's really important for uh, muscle repair and growth and it's also important for making us feel full and satisfied so when we cut way back on protein we're often left feeling unsatisfied which leads to us either snacking more or deciding that this is not not the route for us and that we we can't eat this way so it's not about just ditching the meat it's about what do we add back to our plate to replace that protein and plant-based proteins are beans nuts seeds legumes um, tofu which is often a heated uh, topic which I absolutely love and I think I've convinced Kevin to have tofu a couple of different times uh, with some recipes there um, and it, it you get used to that as well and I love it um, but those are some of the ways you can kind of intentionally make sure that you're getting enough um, protein on your plate the other thing I like to ask people is um, did you have a fruit today and if the answer was 
yes, I'm going to go, what was it, right? Because we tend to over uh, credit ourselves in terms of fruits and vegetables. We're like, yeah, I had had fruits and vegetables. Did you have one today? And I think you'll be shocked at the number of people who don't have one every day. And so if you're not, then that's where we start, right? It's, well, how do I have one fruit for for the rest of the week each day? Or how do I have one vegetable? Because if you don't like fruit, which there are people out there, then we don't work on fruit. We work on vegetables because they are just as important as well, adding in those good plant-based sources of um, of fiber and nutrition and uh, anti-inflammatory uh, properties there. So the Mediterranean pattern would be the one that I would kind of steer you toward if you're looking for a meal plan and then looking at ways to intentionally get one meat-free meal a week and at least one fruit and at least one vegetable um, every day as well. All right. What's another strategy if we're, you know, we feel like we've got our diet where it needs to be or we're just not ready to work on that diet? Um, we cannot uh, avoid working on our mental health. Uh, mental health and cognitive health are extremely important as we age because how we think, right, leads to how we feel, how we act, and the choices we make, right? If we are stressed or depressed or just feeling down, that makes going for a walk harder. That makes spending a little bit more time on meal preparation harder, right? And that's one strategy that I work with patients on is matching your habits to your energy levels, right? If it's a low energy day, here are some low energy ways to nourish your body, right? Which may be a yogurt and a piece of fruit, which is better than nothing. Um, So we have to make sure that we are intentionally looking at our mental health when we are looking at our physical health, because you cannot separate the two. We cannot put those things into buckets. They are interrelated together. I want to start by talking about depression, right? And I think depression is so misunderstood because we think that we have to say we feel sad in order to be depressed, Right? And even one of the screening questions for depression is, how often do you feel down, depressed, or hopeless? Right? Uh, and you may go, well, I don't, I don't feel that way. You know? So I must, the way I'm feeling must not be depression. Right? But as we age, that is a less reported symptom. And a more reported symptom is just having a lack of desire to do things or a lack of energy to do things. And a ton of people come see me for fatigue. That's one of the things they'll, they'll present and say, I'm just tired and worn out. And I, you know, nobody can figure out what's going on, you know. And so um, looking at, you know, do I just have a general lack of wanting to do things, even things maybe we really enjoyed doing in the past or hobbies we enjoyed doing in the past, that can be a symptom of depression as well and should kind of prompt us to have a conversation with our healthcare provider um, about that because elevated depressive symptoms that we're not treating are associated with a higher level of dementia and Alzheimer's risk. Right. So it's not something that we just want to push through or any of these other kinds of things. It is something that we want to, you know, intentionally work on and address and bring up with our healthcare providers. 
in particular, how we think about aging can make a difference as well, right? If we have, if we're like negative Nancy about the fact that we're getting older, those negative thoughts can actually increase the aging of our cells and increase our risk for Alzheimer's as well. Whereas positive beliefs can go the other way, right? Can decrease our risk of dementia and also actually decrease our risk of obesity. All right, before we dig into that a little bit more, we do have a caller on the line. So we will go to Mobile and say, good morning, Mikey. How can I help you? Hey, um, you always help me and you already have this morning. Good. As usual. Um, it's always great to hear from you. But I can't resist the impulse to put in this little bit of stuff okay. um, as far as dietary things mm-hmm. because it's so easy and now it's so affordable. Um, uh, mushrooms. Mm, I love mushrooms. I love mushrooms, too, and, and even people who don't, you were talking about, I'd like to suggest that, first of all, the bean sort of things, which mm-hmm. we're getting into the real, I love beans, mm-hmm. too, I know. You don't hear many people say that. Well, too bad for them. <laughs> um, but mushrooms themselves, you add some of that into your bean mm-hmm. recipes, uh, chili, um, uh, stuff to make stuff to make tacos and pasta. Absolutely. And, you know. All the good things that are coming up for fall, you know, that are mm-hmm. really going to give you that bang and the filling and um, the nutrients. Now, i got a question about mm-hmm. mushrooms, though, and I'm, uh, which you being more of a scientist than I, um, uh, is recently it was reported, something that I read, that mushrooms actually, the DNA for them is somewhere, they have their own DNA that's kind of between meat and vegetables. They aren't even, we call them vegetables, Mm -hmm. but they ain't entirely. Is that right? Um, Well, you know, I think we have to think about it in terms of what is their macronutrient, where are they going to fall, right? And, you know, if they were going to be leaning more toward a meat, then they would have to be fairly healthy, uh, hefty in protein content, and they're not. So they make a great meat substitution in terms of flavor and texture, because they do have that chewier component to them that people, you know, enjoy with meat. Um, But they are uh, very low in protein. They're actually very low in almost everything they they because they are so largely add, they are largely water um is is what so they are add something like eggs or um uh maybe milk if, if you're not yeah vegan, absolutely know, like, absolutely you know, um, um throw in some beans, mushrooms of course you know yeah. if you are vegan then the beans that's where you go with the beans right? or your tofu um you know i do a good tofu yeah. scramble with mushrooms in there um mushrooms if you get them grown under uv light can actually be a source of plant-based vitamin D, which there are very few actually just sources of vitamin D in general um, from a dietary perspective, um, but uh, they can be a good source of plant-based vitamin D there. So I adore them, eat them multiple times a week, um, but they, they don't have a whole lot of anything in them. Uh, they just kind of serve as a, a filler and a way to get, um, you know, bulk well, up well, things. Well, I, have to dis- I have to disagree. I don't think that they're just a filler because if you look at the many ways that it is to work with them, um, uh, first of all, you can just eat them raw. They're mm-hmm. a convenience food Excellent. right out of the fridge. Absolutely. You know? And uh, st- stick them into some kind of a dip or, you know, whatever you got, work with it. Um, but second of all, um, if you do have more than you can eat at one 
sitting, which, of course, you know, but as I say, they're so affordable now. Why mm. not? You know, go ahead and get a couple of tubs, you know, if you're even if you live alone mm-hmm. and then poke holes in the into the cellophane with your fingers and put it in the refrigerator and they will gradually dry on their own magically. Wow. And then, yeah. And then, you know, it's like, and, and then you can, you know, after they've dried, you can take them out and dry them a little more if you want to and store them in uh, glass jars, recycled, of course, but, you know, and they'll last indefinitely there. Or you can just reuse them that way. I just tried some, you know, a couple of days ago um, uh, that I just set out on the counter and let them get really dry. But then I took them in and just chopped them into really much finer particles and threw them in with the my- egg that I was microwaving in a custard cup. And it, it was You always have the best tips for me, Mikey. Thank you so much for giving me a call. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio, and I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, and we've been talking all about how to age in a healthy way this past hour. And in the last few minutes of the show, I want to circle back to mental health and make sure that I give you some action items or some action steps to try and put in place there. We talked about the importance of addressing depression, but I also want to make sure that we talk about stress and just the fact that chronic stress can impair our memory, it can impair our decision making, and it can increase our risk um, for developing dementia. And so looking at chronic stress is so important. And the difference between acute stress and chronic stress is important to also kind of think about. Acute stress can be a good thing. It can make us do things, right? If you think back to when you were in school and you had a test coming up or a paper due, the stress of having that due prompted you to work on it, right? So that you were able to get those things done. What becomes a problem is when that crest, that stress becomes chronic and it takes over the way that we you know, truly are thinking and our ability to carry out other parts of our life. And so there are several things that we can do to help with that. Um, meditation or mindfulness is one particular way to do that. And people often look at me weird when I say that because it seems weird, right? But really, we're just being still and being quiet, which can be very hard in in the way that we live our lives now with everything go, go, go and noise coming in from lots of different areas. But just sitting with yourself um, and sitting with your thoughts and trying to let those thoughts float away a little bit and focus in on yourself and in on your breathing and the way that you're feeling the things that you're hearing is another important way um, to work on your stress. But my two favorite techniques, one is called worry journaling, right, where we actually write down the things that we're worried about. We write down why we're worried about those things, what we can do to help decrease that worry. And then at the end, Did that worry actually happen? Whatever we were worried about, did that come to fruition? Because the vast majority of the time, it does not. And so over time, our brain learns that not everything is on fire and not everything is going to be the worst possible outcome. And then having a pet 
can dramatically reduce your stress and improve your mental health. So we actually, um, they actually looked at this study that looked at pet owners and looked at their cognitive function as well, right? So their memory and those types of, of things. Their ability to um, uh, learn and process and store memories. And people who were dog owners had better ability to be able to do that. Um, people that were dog owners had a, a more improvement in their physical function. Um, but people that were cat folks, which I'm a cat mom, um, had better improvement in verbal learning and memory. And what was really interesting with this study is that even if you didn't own the pet, if you just got to be around pets regularly or re around animals, you got some of the same benefits. So maybe consider volunteering at one of the animal shelters or going and visiting friends that have pets. You will reap those benefits that way as well. If you didn't get your question in to us today, you can always email me those questions. My email address is fit at mpbonline.org. This hour always goes by so quickly, and I always have so many other things that I want to tell you and talk with you about. And that's why I'll be back next week with more content on ways that you can stay healthy and fit. Our show is produced by the wonderful Kevin Farrell and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting app and go ahead and subscribe. That way you never have to miss an episode of Southern Remedy. I've been your host, Josie Bidwell. See you next week. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Thank you.